Well, good morning. We are nearing the end of summer. It's amazing that fall festival is just around the corner and some people are thinking about Christmas. (laughs) Unbelievable. And uh, we're in the life of Abraham and having the glory boys here this morning and Pastor Walter, they've all got beards and I don't. I think I should have let a beard grow this morning or this, (laughs) not this morning, over the last number of months. We're in Genesis chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22 is the story about a, the sacrifice of a son. No other story in Genesis, indeed in the whole of Scripture, can match the sacrifice of Isaac for its haunting beauty and its theological depth. It's a message for those who have faith in God, for those who are in relationship with the ultimate reality of the universe, and it's for those who are not of faith. The account of the sacrifice of Isaac, it reverberates with echoes of the whole story of Abraham. It's a story devoted to a man's growth in faith. And this here is the decisive moment in Abraham's life. The decisive moment in the entire faith journey. It's a story about Abraham. Abraham's name will appear 18 times in 19 verses. It's a story about his faithful obedience to God's command. Six times we read, God said. Two times God had told him. So God is speaking to Abraham. The test will be in relation to his son. The word son, it appears 13 times. Isaac, five times. And so the text will talk about this precious relationship between father and son, relentlessly emphasizing the importance of that relationship and also the weight of the decision that Abraham will need to make. Life provides us with critical decisions along the way, doesn't it? Decisions that reveal the values that we hold. For example, will we continue to study or will we enter the workforce? Will we remain single or will we marry? Will we stay where we are living or will we move to a new location? These choices that we make, they reflect our values. And in a similar manner, in our faith journey, we need to make some very big decisions in critical moments. For example, will we follow Jesus or or will we go another way? Will we just attend church, show up occasionally? Or will we actually identify with the body of Christ and walk in relationship with people? What would the ultimate test of your faith look like? The main idea in the message today is that God orchestrates tests of faith in our real life experience, our everyday life, that impact us profoundly. They shape us. They change us. And lead us to a deeper assurance of God's resolve to keep his promises. So let's dig into the text. This is God's word. Genesis 22 verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. 
So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and will worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. Verse 1, after these things, that's the way the text begins. And so some time has elapsed between chapter 21 and chapter 22. Chapter 21 ends with Abraham's sojourn many days in the land of the Philistines. Indeed, Isaac is probably a young teenager in chapter 22. At the end of chapter 21, Abraham, Abraham has a son, the promised son, Isaac. He has a permanent well in Beersheba, and so the land promise is being fulfilled. He's at peace. And then we read, God tested Abraham. This moment is about God. It's about the everlasting God, the enduring God of chapter 21, verse 33. The God who provided a son and a well. The one in whom Abraham hopes and trusts. And he makes a command that perplexes us. It's about Abraham being attentive to God. Three times Abraham says, here I am. It sounds like Isaiah. It sounds like Jesus. Here I am. It's the right response for anyone responding to the voice of God. It's a humble, obedient response. It reflects, as Pastor Jonathan said last week, a gentle confidence. It's about true radical faith, trusting in God completely. Faith is determined action in the direction of the revealed will of God. And here, Abraham is not bargaining with God. You see no debate with God. It is just obedient movement. Here I am. He saddles his donkey. He cuts the wood and he goes. Faithful obedience is evidenced by a ready response. A ready response. What does it mean to test? Why would God test Abraham? Testing must be distinguished from tempting. God doesn't tempt people to do evil. Satan tempts us to destroy us, to entice us to do wrong. God tests. To test is to test another to see whether the other proves worthy or not. And so the testing comes in our lives to test the quality of our faith. Do we trust God or do we not? And normally it involves some hardship or difficulty. C.S. Lewis wrote, Hardships often prepare ordinary people for extraordinary destiny. For example, God tests the people of Israel. They're in the wilderness. He tests them with hunger, with thirst. Later, he tests them with foreign oppression. Why does God test the people of Israel? To discover what is in their heart. To strengthen their faith. 
In the test, a person feels torn between God and that which, or the person that the person, uh, the person that is hold, held dear. There's a tearing. There's a, a tension. This happens in real life. You see, faithful obedience is learned through testing. We don't know the measure of our faith until we've been tested. Faithful obedience is learned through testing. Is God testing your heart attachments today? What would he be testing in your heart today? What will he ask of Abraham? Verse 2, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. Your only son because Ishmael is now gone. Isaac is Abraham's only son, this much-loved son, the long-delayed fulfillment of the promise. Take your son and go to the land of Moriah, to one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Go should be read, go by yourself. We hear echoes of Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. In fact, in all of Scripture, this phraseology is only used two times. In Genesis chapter 12, the beginning of Abraham's journey, and now in chapter 22, near the end of his journey. 22, verse 2. We're to take note. This is a dramatic moment that takes us right back to the beginning of Abraham's journey. This chapter carries God's last recorded words to Abraham. And so we have in the text a summary of all of the conversations with Abraham along the way. Abraham, leave everything you have held most dear. He has left land. He has left kindred. He has left family. He has sent Ishmael away. And now the Lord says, take Isaac. Take Isaac and offer him there as a burnt offering. The command in chapter 12, it came with promises. It came with incentives to obey obey the command. But this command here in chapter 22, it seems to nullify all of the promises, all hope. Could God have asked anything harder of a father? Ultimately, to whom is Abraham attached? To God or to his son? What is his deepest emotional attachment? Where does his hope lie? Does it lie in God himself or in his son? What is my Isaac that I love? What is your Isaac that you love? What is it that you hold most dear? It's interesting that the obstacle here in this text is not Sarah's barrenness, or some foreign ruler like Abimelech. It's not Ishmael. The obstacle lies, it resides within Abraham's own soul. Does he love God first? Or does he love his son more than anything? Do we love God's gifts to us more than God? Faithful obedience requires yielding our Isaacs. Maybe God is asking something of you today that just doesn't make sense right now. Can you trust God with that? What stands between us and God? What are we unable to release? Maybe it's our independence. 
Maybe we just don't yield to Jesus because we want to go our own way. We could never sing, thy will be done, from the heart. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's a son or a daughter. Maybe it's our family. Maybe it's a job or a career or a business. Maybe you cannot entrust your future. What is it that we struggle with releasing into the hands of God? Faithful obedience requires yielding our Isaacs. Verse 2, go to the land of Moriah. The only other mention of Moriah in all of Scripture is Second Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1, where King Solomon is building a temple to Yahweh, the God Almighty, in Jerusalem. In this text, that mountain is referred to that place four times. In that word place, it refers to a special place, a holy sanctuary. That name Moriah, it carries within itself the word for provide. And so something about forthcoming salvation is being hinted at in the name Moriah. Mount of the Lord probably, probably refers to the hill where Abraham's descendants will make sacrifices, where they will worship God, where the glory of God will fill the temple. And it certainly foreshadows one who will give his life on that mount. Verse 3, offer him there as a burnt offering. What? (laughs) This command is so disturbing. Why would God ask for the sacrifice of a child? Well, you see, child sacrifice was common in the ancient Near East. Abraham was wandering through Canaan. And the peoples in that land, they sacrificed their children in order to ensure the fertility of the soil, to guarantee that they would continue to have offspring. And so the command itself would have not been so strange to Abraham's ears. But as we read the story, Genesis chapter 22, we discover that the God of Abraham never asks for the sacrifice of a child. When you look at the command and the outcome, you realize that God would never ask for the sacrifice of a son or daughter. And of course, when we read the law of Moses, which is given later, God asks for the firstborn to be dedicated, but that firstborn is always redeemed by an animal sacrifice. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. In this critical moment of Abraham's faith journey, this was the greatest demand that God could have made made of him. How does Abraham respond? Verse 3, Abraham rose early in the morning. Again, the early rise, it indicates his readiness to obey. He cuts wood before embarking on the journey because he doesn't know where the sacrifice is going to happen. Verse 4, we read, On the third day he lifted up his eyes. Talks about a three-day journey. It took about three days to walk from Beersheba to Jerusalem. It's a walk of about 80 kilometers. Often in Scripture... Two days are required to prepare someone or a people to encounter God. For example, in the book of Exodus, the people of Israel are being invited by God to leave Egypt to worship him on a mountain. And Moses goes to Pharaoh, let us go, because on the third day, on the third day of our journey, we will arrive at the mountain and worship God on Mount Sinai. And of course, something is foreshadowed that will happen in the life of Jesus. 
On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place. In Genesis, lifting up the eyes and seeing that phrase, it always indicates that something very important is being seen. You can imagine the pang that shot through Abraham's heart when he saw the mountain. He saw the place. Abraham asked the two young men to remain behind so that he and Isaac can go worship. This is between them and God. And Abraham and Isaac's journey to the mountain here, of course, symbolizes our journey of faith. How often we feel alone. It's between us and God. There are decisions that we need to make, decisions that only you and I can make in our relationship to God. Will we yield our Isaac or won't we? Then Abraham says, I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Come again to you. What does Abraham mean by we will come again to you? Is this a white lie? Is he disguising his true purpose? Does he intend to not actually obey the command of God? Or is this statement filled with hope? I believe that Abraham is committed to obeying God's command, but he does so with a quiet hope that both of them will return. He was willing to offer his own son as a burnt offering, but he believed that God would bring him back to life. Look at Hebrews chapter 11. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. For the author of Hebrews, Abraham serves as an example of one who, in the midst of crisis, in that moment when he needs to make a critical decision, he acts with faith. And he obeys to the limit, believing that God will keep his word. Abraham serves as an example to every true disciple of Jesus. Reading on in Hebrews chapter 12, let us also lay aside every weight and every sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Faithful obedience is empowered by hope in God. Abraham was empowered by his hope in God, and we are to be empowered as well. Abraham takes the wood of the burnt offering off the donkey, puts it on Isaac's back. Isaac is like a condemned person carrying wood for his own sacrifice. It's a moment of tremendous tension in the text. Fire and knife in the hands of the father. Do you see the foreshadowing of, foreshadowing of the one who would carry wood for his own sacrifice? So they went, both of them together, that phrase, both of them together, verse 6 and verse 8, it frames the scene, Abraham and Isaac, father and son, alone on a journey, climbing the mountainside, together, companions, and then you hear Isaac's naive, curious question, Dad, where's the lamb? It's poignant. It's painful. And you hear Abraham's response. God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. 
Is Abraham speaking ironically here? Is he maybe expressing faith that God somehow will provide? That somehow God will preserve his son? Note that God is placed before provide, placed for emphasis. God will provide for himself. That's a prayer of faith. Isaac just accepts the answer. Trusts his father entirely. And they continue on, both of them, together. Journeying in silence. One commentator writes, the most poignant and eloquent silence in all of literature. Faithful obedience demands trusting God alone for provision. When you yield your Isaac into God's hands, you trust him alone to provide. Whatever your Isaac is that you have laid down on the altar, God will provide for himself to the utmost against all odds. Chapter 22, verse 9. Genesis 22, verse 9. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order, in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. In verse 9, the narrative just slows right down. It's like a slow motion camera. There's detail. Altars built. Wood laid. Isaac bound, Isaac laid on the altar, on top of the wood, Abraham proceeding with resolute, radical faith. Abraham reaches out his hand, takes the knife, and then, Abraham, Abraham, the angel of the Lord calls from heaven. Yahweh, the God who is present to save, the same one that called Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, the same one that called him to leave his land, his kindred, and his family, the same one that called him to send Ishmael away, now says, Abraham, Abraham, do not do anything. And Abraham stands frozen. Now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son. What does it mean to fear God? To fear God means to put obeying God above every other consideration in life. Abraham's obedient response here confirms his fear of God. And that, my friends, is the beginning of wisdom. The wise person fears God. The wise person puts obeying God above every other consideration, acts on faith. Listen to James. James chapter 2. 
Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. Earlier, Abraham's faith was the means by which he was counted as righteous, as being rightly aligned with God. Now, Abraham's faith is completed by his works. You see, true faith always expresses itself in obedience. When the Creator calls Abraham, Abraham just says, Here I am. Here I am. And Abraham is called a friend of God. Whom do we honor? What do we honor? Whom do we fear? Do we fear God? Or do we fear people? Do we honor God? Or do we honor our own reputation? Whom or what we honor reveals who our ultimate friend is. And so when God looks at me or looks at you, does he say, my friend? There's my friend. Faithful obedience requires that we obey God above every other consideration. Verse 13, Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. The reading should probably be, just caught. That's the sense in the Hebrew, just caught. And so as Abraham raises his hand with the knife, as he is ready to follow the Lord's command, a ram is caught in that moment. God's perfect timing. The ram is caught in a thicket, and Abraham sacrifices the ram instead of his son, in the place of his son. This is the first explicit reference in all of Scripture to substitutionary sacrifice, that one life would be given on behalf of another. Abraham expresses his devotion and his gratitude by naming that place, the Lord will provide, Jehovah-Jireh. That can also be translated, the God who takes care of details so that all things will be cared for. You see, faithful obedience opens the way for God to take care of the details. When you yield your Isaac, that which is most precious to you, do you trust God to take care of the details? When you entrust your children into God's hands, when you entrust your job, your career, your future, when you entrust what is most precious to you into God's hands, do you trust him that he will provide? And he is more than able as the sovereign Lord of the universe to take care of every detail. God is not done. There's much more. Genesis chapter 22 verse 15. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn. 
declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. The significance of the oath in these verses should not be bypassed. It should not be overlooked. This is the first and the last time in Genesis that God will swear an oath by his own name. These verses are the last and most emphatic statement of God's promises to Abraham. All along the way, God has been making promises. Abraham, you will be blessed. You will have numerous descendants. You will inherit the land. You will be a blessing to all nations. And now that process of making promises, it comes to a climax, and God says, I will not only bless, I will surely bless. I will not only multiply, I will surely multiply. And then another superlative is added to the number of descendants, not just like the stars of heaven, but like the sand on the seashore. God says, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord. That phrase, declares the Lord, always connected in Scripture to an oath to ensure God's dependability. What he has said, he will surely do it. Now, a question. Does God need to swear? Is not his word enough? Hebrews chapter 6. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. So the strengthening of the promises made decades earlier, repeated throughout the life of Abraham, those promises are strengthened with an oath for Abraham's encouragement. Faithful obedience leads us to a deeper understanding of God's resolve. It is not that God changes over time. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is immutable. He always keeps his word But he gives the oath for Abraham's strengthening. And then note in verses 17 and 18, the oath, it it focuses on a single descendant. Genesis emphasizes that there will be a unique line of offspring through Abraham. And through that offspring, all nations will be blessed. That's why Paul can insist in Galatians 3. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. So from the perspective of all of Scripture, this oath to Abraham, it comes to fulfillment in the Son who gives himself as a sacrifice on a wooden cross. You see, Isaac's near sacrifice typifies the sacrifice of Jesus. Like Isaac, Jesus silently consents to the sacrifice. Like Isaac, Jesus carries his own wood for sacrifice up the mount. 
Like Isaac, Jesus obediently offers himself in submission to the Father's will. Like Isaac, Jesus trusts his Father completely. But unlike Isaac, Jesus actually dies. Abraham, of course, is a type of God the Father. And he takes his son to offer him as a burnt offering, but he does not sacrifice his son. God the Father, however, does. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. God the Father provides the perfect lamb, Jesus, the sacrifice once for all, the one who took our sin upon himself. He stands in our place forever. He stands in the place of humanity. And Christ's obedience to death secures all of the covenant promises made to Abraham. If we are in Jesus, then we are the offspring of Abraham. We are those of faith. You see, faithful obedience will always lead us to God's ultimate provision. Jesus. And those of us who have put our faith in Jesus are secure in our salvation because God has promised us eternal life. Through Jesus, our sins are forgiven. And God has sent his Holy Spirit to live within us. And we have been promised eternal life, and God cannot lie. And he has guaranteed our salvation with the seal the seal of the spirit of promise, the Holy Spirit himself indwelling us, empowering us, not only for this life, but sealing us for eternity. Let's go back to Hebrews chapter 6. Those verses that we read about the oath that was made to Abraham, that passage is completed with these words. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus stands as our high priest forever. He anchors our souls behind the curtain in the presence of God forever. Nothing can separate us from his love. Jesus is and always will be our high priest, the one who anchors us in the presence of God. We are secure. There is no tide, no wave, nor sto- nor, no storm that can remove us from his presence. Hallelujah. Amen. Amen. We are his forever. And if you have never yielded your life to Jesus, I invite you to accept his salvation, the forgiveness of your sins, relationship with God, life forever, and he will send his spirit to live within you. Let's pray. Let's stand to pray. So Father, we thank you for your goodness, for your abundant mercy, for your grace. We thank you that while we were yet sinners, God, you loved us and you sent your son. Thank you, Jesus, for coming. Thank you for dying in our place. Thank you for paying the price for our redemption. 
Thank you for forgiveness of sin. Thank you that our guilt is removed, our shame is removed. Thank you that we have nothing to fear but you, Lord. And so may we honor you above every other consideration. Lord, may we keep our eyes fixed on you. You're the author and perfecter of our faith. May we run the race that you set before us for the joy set before us. Thank you, Lord, for filling our lives with hope. May we share these wonderful news, this wonderful good news, the gospel, with those that you have placed in our lives, with those that we meet, O oh God. I pray for those here that may not have given their lives to you, Jesus. I pray that in this moment they will yield their hearts to you, I pray that they will receive you as Lord and Savior. I pray that they will repent asking for forgiveness of sins. I pray that they will open their hearts to your Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, we stand before you recognizing you as the only God, the giver of life, and it is in you that we place our hope and our trust. And may now the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 God bless you. Have a wonderful week.